my big break this is my big chance you know what i mean you don't just walk on to a network show without experience now i know it's an old hackneyed expression but it happens to be the truth you've got to start at the bottom i know that's where i am at the bottom that's a perfect place to start so will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest king of comedy rupert hupkin His name is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pupkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert. Pupkin. P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight, the whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Robert De Niro. Jerry Lewis. In a Martin Scorsese picture. The King of Comedy. Welcome to Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late-night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Adam Walker. And joining me, as always, is my splendid, fine-sounding, robust, unimpeachable, mensch, Pat Mitchell. Keep going. Good what morning, intro. After- Good morning, afternoon. Hey, nothing but the best for you, baby. Thank you. So, what do you got to say today? Anything? Any good stuff? <laughs> what do you any say? Good, any good news? No. Still no cold in the, mid- in the Midwest. I don't know when it's going to warm up, up out here, but... It's cold here, too. Don't worry. Um, it was 70 few days ago and I, I i was like okay well it seems a little early i'm yeah, not we're a in fan the teasing of the teasing phase of weather where we just get little teases here and there and never really stays consistent until probably next month yeah and then last night at uh one of the venues i worked at um i was stuck outside on my my position was outside and i Showed up for work and it was pretty nice out as far as the weather goes and fairly warm. So I was dressed, thinking I was dressed appropriately. And then it just started hailing and pissing rain for the eight rest of the eight hours I was there outside. So it was very cool. My, my God. What was the very, hell? Was very happy. Happy, happy camper. Um. That is sarcasm, but you know what isn't sarcastic is I'm happy that we're talking about this movie today, Pat, and we're back to our guy, Martin Scorsese, who, I don't know if I mentioned this when we were talking about Cape Fear, but Martin Scorsese, as far as big time, 
mainstream, well-known Hollywood directors, aside from John Carpenter, he's probably my second favorite director. Non-horror related. Yeah. We've, we've managed to sneak him on, on the two, two Scorsese episodes on here. I, I think this this might tap it out. I don't, I'm not sure there's much more Scorsese that would fit into the Midnight Flicks box, but it's glad I'm glad to have the Scorsese De Niro pairing back. Uh, I loved the Cape Fear episode. Uh, uh, that's one of my favorite movies. I've never seen um, King of Comedy though. So until now, you've seen it yeah, now. Until now, unless yeah. you never, unless you didn't watch it. And then I'm just gonna, yeah, be, this is going to be an awkward episode because I'm going to really be <laughs> a lot of impromptu takes. Um, yeah, Scorsese and De Niro, as the kids say, name a more iconic duo. I'll wait. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll be, you'll two, be waiting a while. Two of my favorites. I just I got I've had a big, big, big man crush on De Niro for many, many a year. He's up there in my pantheon of of dude bro movie guys, even though he's kind of a lib and but all movie stars are insufferable libs and don't have the best takes politically, but but still nonetheless, I don't begrudge anybody that really, because what matters most is what do they bring into the table creatively? And De Niro has it in spades, of course. I've loved pretty much every movie he's been in that I've seen. I haven't tapped into all of them. This, however, tonight's movie, King of Comedy, was a little bit of a swerve, I would say, for both these gentlemen, directorially and acting-wise. It's really pretty different from any of the other uh, gentlemen's oeuvre, (laughs) as they say. So, but before we get further into that, we've got to do our little game. That we like to do here. Oh, of course. How could we forget? Just don't forget. Chump. Don't forget about the, the, the chumping. We're going to champing on the chump. So. I'm not feeling very confident. I'm. You're going to get this one. I'm, I need I'm a H- win. I need a win in the worst way. Sweetie, don't worry. We're going to give you a win. Okay. So I need you to get your, uh, get your courage up. Shake it off. I'm going to set the timer here when you're ready. I'm as ready as I'm going to be. If I if I win this one, we're both tied at two and two. Two I, wins, two losses. I wager, my friend, you're going to get this within at least three movies, okay? Ugh, now you're putting pressure on me. But I'm going to go way back just to, to put the heat on. Okay. So good. I'm not going to give it to you right away. Are you ready, my friend? Yes. Here we go. 1968, NYPD TV series. 1969, Me, Natalie. 1971, The Panic in Needle Park. 1972, The Godfather. 1973, Scarecrow. Also 1973, Serpico. 1974, The Godfather Part 2. Pacino. There we go. Ding a ding a ding a ding ding ding. You got it. Wow. Under half a minute. I do. I'm, I feel good. Wow. I, I, I appreciate you throwing me a, a softball, and now we're both at two and two. 
uh, we're, we're both back at 500, which is a good place to be in most sports. Uh, so, good to know. I wanted you to go into this episode feeling confident about your wit, because you're a witty guy. You're a clever man. This, I don't want this you to has ever... boosted. This has boosted my confidence. I feel so much better now. Yeah, I don't want you to ever second guess your intellect. Not not on my watch, my friend. <laughs> what a weight, weight off my shoulders. <laughs> All right, so returning to the content at hand, the King of Comedy. This came out in 1982. This was there about. This was off, you know, of course, uh, a string of Scorsese heaters. Let's just look it up here real quick. What we're uh, jumping off of from King of Comedy. I should have pulled this up earlier, but so hang on. We're going to do a little bit of post. To that, that's what tr- editing is for. Truncate this. So you're not make like, you wow. make you look like you had looked it up. I have uh-huh. it in front of me. Oh, you do. Okay. So, um, yeah, so we've got, I mean, this is still fairly early into his well, mid, mid early career. So we've got taxi driver, 1976, New York, New York, Raging Bull, 1980, and then this. So I suppose really as far as acclaimed movies, he really only had maybe Taxi Driver in New York, New York under his belt and Raging Bull. Raging Bull. And then he decides to do this swerve here with the King of Comedy, which would you consider, I would consider this a a dark comedy, right? So it's interesting. I I wasn't I wasn't expecting something so fantastically unhinged. It was <laughs> it was truly like a transformative film experience for me. Like few films have this ability to make you squirm like at a cellular level. <laughs> this movie made me want to crawl out of my skin with discomfort. And I absolutely loved it. I, I was fully expecting like an offbeat, lighthearted comedy of sorts. Maybe not lighthearted, but yeah, an offbeat, dark comedy of sorts. And what I got was like a stark look at unbridled fandom in mm. contrast to like the trappings of fame. And I was not expecting that at all. Um and I also understand, like, why it wasn't positively received, like, because of it. Like, after watching it, I'm like, oh, I get it. This is not <laughs> for everybody. People don't like to be made to feel uncomfortable, especially when it's not something they signed up for. Like, you go, you buy a ticket to go see a horror movie or a thriller or whatever, or, like, more avant-garde directors that that knowingly make you feel weird, like Lars von Trier or whatever. You know what you're signing up for. But this right. was like billed as Scorsese De Niro and Jerry Lewis. And, yeah. and then you get into it and you're like, uh, this is uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. in the best way, I fucking loved it. Very few films come along my purview where I'm like, I don't I haven't experienced this type of feeling or this type of movie before. This was singular in its experience. I, I could not have loved it anymore. Oh, I absolutely, that brings me so much joy 
Did I answer your question? I don't know if I answered your question. Is this a dark yeah. comedy? <laughs> is the question. Yes, you did. Yes, you did because to me, it is more than a dark comedy. There's so much going on with this. The premise is so simple, but there is so much going on with it, nonetheless. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree. And you can see where, although this movie didn't hit it off. You can see where its DNA crept into so much coming forward later on. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, there was a generation of younger filmmakers that grew up seeing this, started making movies in the late 90s, 2000s, up to now. You see how this crept into their influences. Obviously, the most particular instance being the Joker, which everybody if anybody knows anything about this movie and they've never seen it, they they know that there is this there's become this link between the two. The Joker clearly took the premise of this movie and made it way way darker and grittier. But nonetheless, again, the DNA of it exists in this movie. There's almost like exact shot for shot scenes lifted from this place into the Joker. Yeah, I didn't know. I was going to maybe ask you before we started, but now's a good time for this discussion. I had that in my good, but we can maybe go into it deeper in the good, or we can have this discussion now. That's up to you. You're in the have driver's seat. We can have it now if you want to talk about the Joker, because at this point, the Joker is a polarizing film. Um, and unfortunately, I feel that that is due to today's climate as far as everything having such polarizing divisive effects on people. I personally think the Joker was a really good movie. I don't think it was mind blowing. I think it got read into way deeper than it needed to be, but I think the movie was great. I like Todd Phillips. I think Joaquin Phoenix did a really great job. So, that's you know and i think because i saw this movie and knew about it before i saw the joker maybe that's what lended my appreciation to be more Mm. um distinct for it as opposed to maybe Mm -hmm. some people so that's what i'll say about that well i don't know what what do you have to say and not much i you know it just it is it is something to talk about like the film's enduring legacy and its influence on other filmmakers. I'm talking about King of Comedy, obviously. Um, and most notable of which is in Todd Phillips' inception of what what his Joker is. But like what you talked about, the scene where Joker like fantasizes of performing on the Murray Franklin show and Joker's overall like idolization of Murray and how that mirrors Rupert's obsession with Jerry Langford, it's such a loving tribute. And right. the fact that De Niro appears as the talk show host in Joker just brings everything full circle. Um, and it's just great. I, I, I obviously did this in reverse having seen uh, Joker first and King of comedy second. Um, but I, what I did was last night I watched King of comedy 
And then we watched Joker. I watched Joker right after it. Oh, really? And then I watched, yeah, yeah. I did a King of Comedy sandwich. I watched King of Comedy. Then I watched Joker immediately afterwards. And then I watched King of Comedy again. And then I watched oh. King of Comedy this morning. I just watched it three times in like 24 <laughs> hours. Because I was like, I couldn't keep my eyeballs off of it. So I watched it twice last night and once this morning. But um, yeah, you can really see in, in Joker how how the tendrils of King of Comedy really inspired Todd Phillips. And I, I, I think Joker is great. Incels hijacked that movie and made yeah. it into a woe is me thing. Uh, and that sucks. But I can compartmentalize and, and like Joker for what it is outside of, outside of that, that bullshit. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Same. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really appreciative that you did this extra credit deep dive <laughs> into this movie because I can honestly say that for years, speaking of incels, <laughs> Taxi Driver <laughs> was my favorite Scorsese movie and it's still up there. Um, but honestly, this might be my favorite Martin Scorsese movie. It's very close. And that's that's a hard pick because I like so many of them. I it's fun. it's hard to rank. I don't I absolutely adore this movie, but like I have a bigger connection to like Color of Money. Like I really love Color of Money a whole lot, but that's more nostalgic too cuz Paul Newman is something I like share with my dad and Paul Newman movies. And I, I love the passing of the torch that's going on there between him and Tom Cruise. So there's like, and Cape fear. And then obviously all of his actual bangers, but I think this is Scorsese's most underappreciated for sure. Mm. It's low key. His it's, it's his most underappreciated is, I guess I could say, I don't know if it would be like my favorite necessarily, but it, it it deserves more attention, which is why we're doing an episode on it. Correct. And what you said is what a lot of people say. It's it's an underappreciated Martin Scorsese movie. Tragically underappreciated, but whatever. Yes, that's yeah, fine. yeah. Criminally underappreciated. Crim- yeah. But that but that's fine. But then that leads leaves it for those of us with more refined tastes. Yeah, 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 because we're not going to do like, you know, we're not going to do any of the the Scorsese heavy hitters on here. Uh, You know, that's not the type of podcast this is. So we're never going to do Goodfellas or whatever. Right. This may or may not be the last Scorsese movie, although it may not be the last De Niro movie, because I could see us doing like Angel Heart or something fucking crazy. My man. Because I love Please, that fucking movie. Speak not another word about that because you're <laughs> you're looking into the crystal ball of Midnight Flicks when you utter that movie. There's like that's uh De Niro and Angel Heart is like a top five most fuckable humans. Like it's, his he looks he is banging in that movie. Oh my god. It's unreal. All yes. Bearded up. Oh, I love bearded De Niro. Give me Lu- yeah. give me Lucifer, Robert De Niro, any any day, my friend. Ooh, getting <laughs> hot, hot under the britches. Got to air out my my balls are dripping. It's like it's like we're so close to the fire fires of hell. It's just singeing our ball hair, T- titillating. I'm titillated. 
<laughs> by the mere mention of it. All right, to get us back on track. So this stars Robert De Niro, Jerry Lewis, and Sandra Bernhardt in her second film, but first with any dialogue. And boy, howdy, as you say, what <laughs> what a performance by such a uh, a rookie actress. She really this is a this is a reclamation tour for Sandra Bernhardt for me because she's she is Roseanne to me. Yes, same. And I don't like her character in Roseanne uh, Mm -hmm. at all. And so, like, I hadn't seen any good Sandra Bernhardt. This was a Sandra Bernhardt reclamation tour. I she is fucking awesome. But yes, let's get through the let's get through this so we can actually get to spewing our our love all over this, this fine cast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so plot description, if we haven't already kind of given you a clue is essentially what we have here is we have a deluded comic who is trying to get onto his idols talk show, Jerry Langford, and through a series of harassments and and harebrained plans, ends up eventually kidnapping his idol, and the all the mayhem and mischief and, and weirdness ensues all around this, where this lunatic essentially is doing everything he can to make sure that he gets onto a show and realizes his comic dreams. So that's basically the gist of it. Um, the, <laughs> the budget for this movie was $20 million. It made two and a half million. <laughs> so I'm, I mean, it's impressive that Martin Scorsese was able to get any work <laughs> after that, but, our man bounced back and then some, but yes, this definitely—I'll uh, get into this in the trivia later on. Why there's such a um, a drastic gap between those numbers, though. Now, part of it clearly is what you know related to the aforementioned sort of things we discussed about it being a weird swerve and not really being what audience audiences probably perceived going into it with those names associated with it. But there were some other things that were kind of out of Scorsese's control that created that problem as well. Hmm. which I'll get into later. I'm interested to hear about it. Yeah. Uh, Review wise. I didn't look up any reviews. Sorry. Um, I again, it did. I did see that it looked like it was critically acclaimed. Yeah. I would assume so. Could not get off the ground financially. So, like, it seemed like right. most, most you know, film scholars, even back then, not it wasn't even, like, in retrospect. It was getting fairly good reviews, but just people just couldn't get their butts in the seats for it. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Anything else you want to add before we dive in, Pat? No, I think let's just get right into it. Yeah, we've had a fairly robust off the top, so let's just get into it with the good, the bad, and the questionable.
That's good. Okay, so we've already talked about the cast here. Everybody in here knocks it out of the park. Even we've got we've got so many cameos too mm-hmm. by just interesting old school Hollywood music entertainment types. Be it show, uh, television entertainment, music. We got Victor Borga in here. We've got Tony Curtis, uh, Ed Hurley. Just all these people to give this realization that this that you're living through this weird, skewed, dark part of old school New York, New York slash Hollywood movie entertainment business type world. Yeah. Sorry to chop that all up. So we got, you know, a star studded cast here, but really as far as the people that are getting the most time are the three people that we talked about, De Niro, um, Jerry Lewis and Sandra Bernhardt. I love the simplicity of that. Like those three, uh, those three individuals are like the backbone of the movie. And then yeah, it's it, just a cavalcade of of cameo. Like the Clash are in this randomly. Not like they're right. actually like to have any actual thing to do with this movie. But Joe Strummer is on the street as some like scum punk or whatever they yeah, the build thugs. him as. Thugs, yeah. street thug. But yeah, I, I love that those, those three carry – this movie and it's a very simplistic uh of uh, casting but i they all three of them knock it out of the park yeah so we have this weird dare i say love triangle <laughs> mm-hmm. between the three um, a very fucked up yeah poly <laughs> yeah something's poly going on triangle yeah right so we have that um this is also one of those movies because of its nature. It really, really hinges heavily upon the dialogue, and there's some really fantastic dialogue going on here. We've got a lot of really good, for me, one-liners going on here. Um, yeah, because it like shockingly, as as how dark the subject matter is, and it, it gets like more and more unhinged as it goes along. There are like funny little bits of business uh, here and there that I that I found endearing. And, you know, you need some of that levity, but it, it's, I wouldn't say it's like a knee slapper of a movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so what I like to start off with is talking about how, from the get-go, we have Rupert developing his strategies to corner Jerry. And this mm-hmm. is what it starts off right in the beginning. And this is what we have a continuance all the way to the end with his ultimate plot. <laughs> but that's where you were talking about how this movie just makes you want to just like, uh, just it makes you so uncomfortable because we've all dealt with these punishers, but clearly Rupert is a punisher on a whole nother level. He's a borderline, if not psychotic punisher. And so, <laughs> but this is what makes this movie so fantastic to me is you also feel, you feel for him. They really did a good job of developing this character because you're like, on the one hand, 
he is likable and you're kind of like you're wanting him to ultimately succeed but you know by his nature of being such a deluded doof mm-hmm. that he never will you know yeah. he he's he's one of the, in the in music we deal with this a lot me being a musician and being you know someone that's played in bands a lot had booked a lot of shows where you deal with these individuals that have these delusions where especially where I'm from, I'm from Fort Wayne and there was always this issue of bands that would never tour, would never really play. They somehow had a, they had some connection to a guy at the the rock club. (laughs) So maybe they would get some gigs opening up for fucking Vince Neil or whatever disturbed. And they think we're going to make it. Of course they wouldn't because they they never had the experience or would put in the work or would go anywhere outside of their comfort zone. I feel like that's what we're dealing with here is we have this instance of a gen, uh, of a gentleman that is so sure of his abilities without actually having any sort of control, you know, variable sort of test situation. He's never actually been to a club. He's never tried his chops or tried his material out on real people. And that's what creates this, this delusion that he just, he just immediately can get on this big talk show and, and, and do his bit to millions of people. And that's what creates this, this loop of him being this punisher and trying to do everything he can to circumvent actually doing the work (laughs) to get onto the show. (laughs) And what I found endlessly fascinating is that the Rupert Pupkin archetype is like a uniquely American persona. Yes. Like Rupert delicately toes this line between like deranged stalker and like driven self-starter. Yeah. So (laughs) like only through an American lens of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps can Rupert's actions be like misconstrued as righteous or like the American way when in reality he's a mentally ill individual in need of like serious psychiatric intervention (laughs) but that like speaks to the true American experience that that you know it's it's goes beyond any sort of like boomer motivational meme ever could it's this idea that the American dream is a is a broken facade and yes. there is no such thing as, you know, creating something out of nothing and, you know, coming from humble beginnings and, and becoming a, a fucking Fortune 500 CEO. It's a delusion of grandeur. And I love it's so fascinating to me, this archetype. It's uniquely American. And when I read that Akira Kurosawa this is like one of his favorite movies. I, I love I love how um, Eastern cultures really, really are obsessed with with our the way America is is perceived and the way we go about our business. Yes. Yeah. I love everything you just said about that, which brings me to talk about specifically with the minutiae of this that creates Rupert. I love his fantasy world room mm-hmm. that he's created in his apartment where he lives with his mother. 
<laughs> and the and and this this uh, relationship he has with his mother that you never see off screen, his nagging mother that's insisting that he turn his turn his his uh, stereo down or his his dictaphone or whatever. When he's working on bits, yeah, he's working on bits, and he has his room or basement set up to be a talk show studio. <laughs> he has what seems to be a f- it, it looks like a fake audience on the wall, but that brings me to talk about one aspect of this movie because that particular scene where it pulls out, the shot pulls out from him speaking in front of his fake audience. Yeah. It has this surreal dreamlike aspect of, of it. And that's, that's pervasive throughout the movie is you can tell that Scorsese did not want you to be able to distinguish reality from fantasy. So it would switch scenes between without any sort of, you know, transitions or fades or any sort of idea that would give you that he's just, I mean, you 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 pit, you you perceive it. Obviously, you make that deductive, but uh, there's no trickery involved. Is what I'm trying to say. There's no editing trickery or any sort of um, <clears throat> effects given to it. So specifically, there's again the scene where they pull out from the audience, and he's just in this essentially blank room, which could be perceived almost as like you know whatever a rubber room. That's or his brain. And then it also again, it also reminds me of it, Ru- the Rupert like talk show in his apartment thing reminds me of the of when Kramer raids the Merv Griffin set and puts ha- it in his apartment. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to get to. I had Sorry. that. Down- no, Sorry no, no, no. Step, I, on, step on your Seinfeld dick. No, no, no. I love that you brought it up because, you know, we we, <laughs> we have the Seinfeld mind here when when certain things come up. But yes, perfect. That's exactly what I thought. Was it was like the Merv Griffin episode of Seinfeld? <laughs> it's such a good episode, which it's so is fantastic. also like an unhinged Kramer episode too. Like uh, he has the animal expert on. And he's like, "Where are the cameras?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That's such a good one. It's so good. But that's a perfect example too of who we're dealing with with Rupert because. Kramer is kind of like a Rupert Pupkin in certain ways. Yeah. You know, this person that has no distinguishable, discernible uh, working income, (laughs) but always has like a plan and will punish you to get that plan manifested. (laughs) Yeah. The only difference is like Kramer is made to be like lovable and that is – and Seinfeld is is obviously the most uh, comedic end of that spectrum. So, mm-hmm. but like a whole episode where maybe, or a whole series where Kramer is maybe the focal point would kind of spiral into a king of comedy or Joker sort of like dark, humorless sort of uh, vibe. Instead, you know, Kramer being a side character the light isn't isn't shown in on his world as much so we can we can laugh at the accent you know eccentric qualities of it but yeah being behind closed doors with rupert is unnerving because of <laughs> of where he's at mentally 
Which makes me think, I don't know if you've ever done this thought experiment. I'm sure it was probably proposed at one point. I've never read it. But it leads me to believe that it would have been interesting to see the possibility of a Kramer spinoff from Seinfeld. Never, it never crossed my, never crossed my mind. I, I'm not sure that that could be really dark. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> it might be dark and good in a good way though. Yeah. Um, we've talked about this probably on other episodes, but I really do love movies from this era that that clearly portray this old school New York. Yeah, I know, you do love that. I know. Obviously, the, it's all very romanticized at this point, and I've spoken probably previously on episodes about. You know, my partner's from New York and we talk about it. So she uh, she has more of a of a link to it than I do, because I didn't end up going to New York until I mean, it might have been like right before Giuliani's first like term or whatever, when like things really started to ramp up to the way they are now. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, fundamentally, that era of New York, as much as there's a lot of great things that came out of it and there is this romanticization of it, it was a shithole. It was <laughs> it was a pretty trashed area. But I still I do like its portrayal in art and culture. And so I like that aspect of it to get that glimpse back into the time machine. I also like key things that are also relics of the past, like the scene where they're all fighting over the pay, the pay phone. <laughs> yes. Well, Rupert yeah. refuses to give up because he's in his quote unquote office waiting for the yeah, call yeah. <laughs> to come back from Lang- Langford's Langford's secretary. And there's a whole just row of dudes that are waiting for it. Cause none of the other pay phones work and they're all about to just tear him to mincemeat over that pay phone. <laughs> I do. I love CD underbelly, unchecked violence, New York. Yeah. Like obviously much more than like uh police state post nine 11, New York. Like that, right. That shit fucking sucks. I, I love the, uh, yeah. Seventies, eighties, grimy, dangerous. New York is, is, is a cool fucking vibe, especially for a movie. Um, yeah, which we've done a lot of set in that very specific time period. And yeah, I'm with you. I love I love it, too. Yeah, I think at this point we've done four or five. At Maniac, least, yeah. Maniac Cop, Miss, Miss 45, this. So anyways, so we got that. Um, I did want to mention that I genuinely do giggle uh, at the Pride and Joy gag. That's a good little, that's a good little gag. I, I love the, when he walks up to the secretary, I might just start doing this in my personal life. And he's like, hi, how are you? And she's like, not bad. He's like, good, good. I'm fine. (laughs) He like, doesn't miss a beat. Like she doesn't ask him shit. And he's like, good, good. I'm fine. I'm going to start doing that. And he's like, but he's De Niro's performance in this. We cannot. We cannot state enough. I know. I know. We've touched upon it. Is just fantastic the way he delivers lines. I like. I buy that he could have been a stand-up comedian at times. Like 
the way he delivers that um, good, good, I'm fine line <laughs> is not comedic. Like he's not trying to be funny. He is legitimately like not having a conversation with another person. Like yeah. his conversation with that secretary is all in his mind. It She could have said anything. And mm-hmm. it would have it would not have passed his radar. He's having that conversation upstairs and nowhere else. <laughs> <laughs> right. Clearly. Yes, of course. Fantastic job. Just really went above and beyond with respect, again, to what roles we know De Niro being in, which are fundamentally very masculine roles. This is not a masculine role. This is definitely much more ambiguous in those regards. Rupert yeah, he's isn't a dingus. A, he's a total he's a, dingus. He's a ding dong. <laughs> and it works, but like the pride and joy thing, the interaction with the secretary, like there's just little there's little moments in this that are are genuinely funny and it's great. And and it's all credit to him. And the way he portrayed this character, it's it's endlessly fascinating to me. Speaking of uh, great roles, Jerry Lewis in this also fantastic. And not to get too ahead of ourselves here, because I wanted to bring this up maybe later, but there was some concern about Jerry Lewis being cast in this role and being able to play it straight mm. and he he does it with a plum obviously and mm-hmm. he and <laughs> the fact that when you're going along this ride with him once again with rupert you you, you do have that certain amount of sympathy to him because you want him to get the help that he deserves or maybe get a claim thereafter but with jerry lewis and jerry langford you also feel his frustration and his mm-hmm. irritation and you are definitely put in the shoes of somebody that is an entertainer of that caliber especially an old school entertainer like that and they're just trying to do their day-to-day thing they're just trying to live their life and it's a constant constant battle <laughs> with the world as far as just being able to just live their fucking life. And that's the like those are the themes of the movie is like yeah. the price of celebrity but also like unchecked unhinged fandom and our relationship with celebrity and how those two things compare and contrast. Um, and it's a great like expose on that subject that is just rarely kind of, you know, touched upon um, in in cinema. The, the, you know, I'm sure since this movie, there's been a lot of, you know, breaking of the fourth wall kind of stuff. But um, that this is this does such a great job of of portraying that. Yeah. And to go back to a discussion about payphones and relating to Jerry Langford. This might be my, my favorite one liner in the movie, but specifically there is the scene where he's walking through the city and the lady's on the payphone, And she's like, Jerry, Jerry, can I get an autograph from you? And my, 
my son's on the phone and he's in the hospital and he basically <laughs> he waves her off and then she immediately like on a dime goes i hope you only get cancer or you should get cancer <laughs> see that's the kind of like that's the new york we want yes like yes. even even the most harmless individuals are like <laughs> are venomous they're are venomous, venomous creatures yeah ve- yeah yeah i love it yeah um one of the, the the cool, like, funny little low-key things as far as how we're trying to perceive Rupert through this that I feel is kind of peppered throughout is the fact that nobody can pronounce his name correctly. Yeah, yeah. That, you know what I mean? <laughs> because he has such an odd name and he's such a dingus and whatever. But yeah. my favorite instance of that is when... He shows up to Langford's summer home or his mansion or whatever. With yeah, the Rita. cottage. Yeah, the cottage. And uh, the butler, uh, Jano, is calling Langford on the phone and is trying to explain to him. He's like, yeah, his name is Pumpkin. This is Mr. <laughs> Pumpkin. Mr. Pumpkin is here. <laughs> it's good. And that's a good gag. Like, that's a good comedic gag that is that pays off. It's not driven into the ground. It's very subtle. Like, uh, yeah. I only noticed it actually upon the second and third rewatch that everyone yeah. was calling him a different fucking name. Um, yeah. But it's so good. It's not like <laughs> it's not constant. But when it does happen, it, it's so subtle and, and awesome. But that's like also speaks to the movie. He is forgettable. And, yeah. uh, you know, right. Nobody can really even get his, his fucking name, right. He's not even on anybody's radar because his whole world exists in a fantasy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause he's it's like great. a gnat. He's like a gnat. Yes. At yeah. That yeah. Point. Until he obviously manifests his final coup de grace. But yeah, at that point he's just, he's an irritating like gadfly. So they don't, they don't want that. The idea of him and his name does never, it never wants to settle into anybody's brain. They don't no. want to take the time to get to know him. They're like, get the fuck out of here. You're wasting our time. So, yeah, but that whole scene there at the cottage, I love that. And again, just it really is, it's, it's, that's where it's ramping up the tension level here. Yes. Where Jerry is, he just fucking had it. He's gonna, he, you think he's gonna hit Rupert over the head with his club. He's just like, Every fiber of his patience is being tested to its ultimate tension point. <laughs> and then you don't not only do you have that, but you have the uncomfortable interaction between Rita, where yeah. he corralled this poor woman along, thinking that, you know, they were gonna hang out with his famous buddy, and she gets wise to it, but that she also it's funny because you notice I don't know if you notice this ball, she's there, she does steal some stuff. I so did she, see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Which she's hilarious. Take, yeah, she takes advantage of it for her own purposes, but you know, she's really insistent that she doesn't want to be there. She's very uncomfortable. So I like that whole thing. But I want to bring it finally to because we haven't talked in depth about Sandra Bernhardt mm-hmm. and just her just being this equally unhinged, unmedicated what the fuck person that is Rupert's buddy. I don't know. I want yeah, to talk about that. She's like the old, it's funny. Like they both are like unheard and unseen except right. for one another. Like they're the only ones that hear and see one another. It's almost yeah. like 
society has has completely they're cast offs to to everybody else. But yeah. yeah, the back and forth specifically between Rupert and and Masha after he gets like I, I think of after like he gets kicked out of Jerry's office um, where he makes her believe he's like close personal friends with Jerry yeah. and that she's nothing more than like some crazed fangirl with right. delusions of grandeur. But it's like an unhinged pissing contest of sorts. Like who can be fucking more delusional but they right. they're great together like they're like the bonnie and clyde of unchecked mental health i love it <laughs> right and you just wonder the whole time yeah what what is going on there and they're both gaslighting each other in their own respective yes, ways they both <laughs> gaslight each other into into thinking that they're closer with Jerry than either one of them really is. I, I love it. You need that sounding board uh, yeah. because when nobody's listening to Rupert, then you, you can't be just lost within Rupert and his own thoughts as a, as a viewer, you need yeah. that sounding board. And it's great to have them paired together as like two psychotic individuals, just like, opining with one another (laughs) right because she ultimately has her own designs to get to jerry as well they're they're working together to get to jerry for their own reasons it's not like it's not like mosh is just aiding rupert for his own purposes she also has some obsession with him so they're kind of you know they're 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 developing plans parallel they're e- e- and it's like it's funny because they're equally trying to sabotage each other, but also help one another. Right, right. So. <laughs> it's a partnership. Uh, it's a partnership out of convenience. Right. But obviously, this all leads up to ultimately they do kidnap Jerry, and they bring him to what appears to be Masha's townhouse, which brings all these other questions about Masha. Yes, she has a yeah. very luxurious townhouse that she lives in. Um, and she's wearing what appears to be like a private school, uh, like suit jacket the whole mm-hmm. time. <laughs> so, yeah, just so much going on with that. But then, so they get Jerry kidnapped. They bring him to the the townhouse, and we have the cue card scene, which is just another one of these gags. That's I just was like cracking up so much one of my that. favorite favorite <laughs> scenes in the movie rupert fumbling through the cue cards is some high comedy and only because it's in relation to a uh it's given given the gravity of the situation it's like yes. so funny like some of them are upside down so they're out of order but also like they're professionally written cue cards like uh, like something you would see use on a teleprompter or, or on a television talk show. Right. Set. Which goes back to the whole, the theme here I is, love you know, it. the, inter- so the, inter- the entertainment theme, the, the, the fantasy and reality just not being so intertwined that even details like that, Rupert probably had that in mind. He's, I, he's thinking, I'm going to write these professionally. Like it, it Jerry would the, be reading them. It, and it shows the discombobulation of his brain. There's such high attention to detail on the actual cards, like notations that there's more cards to come or whatever. Yeah. But also they're out of order and upside down, (laughs) which shows like 
you know, the disorganization going on mentally. Yes. Right. But during that whole thing, I just love the fact that Jerry is so staid <laughs> and yeah. he's he's not you can tell he's not afraid for his life he's not no, concerned no. he's he's just so frustrated and so beaten you can tell he's just so he looks so defeated and miserable that he's he has been done in by these bumbling idiots <laughs> <laughs> and he's just trying to get out of it unscathed as best as he can. <laughs> so yeah, he's having I, I that conversation he... on the phone with his with his agent or whatever. Yeah, they don't even believe him. I, I, <laughs> yeah, believe I love how he, I love how he just conducts himself throughout the whole thing in general. But yeah, the, the him having to call back several times because apparently there's like Jerry Langford impersonators out there is, yeah. is fucking hilarious too. And then him having to explain to Rupert why why they asked him about who the second the, cameraman's the cameraman nickname is. is, is yeah, is Helen Keller. <laughs> He's so exasperated that Rupert asks like what they're talking about like he now has to explain to rupert this like code name shit and he's just is so exasperated because he doesn't even want to give rupert an inch and he's just like yeah he, he is just he's he's just succumbed to to the the constant in uh, invasion of privacy that is ramped up throughout the entire movie until it's uh illogical conclusion <laughs> yeah which what we have, you know, they make their deal. Rupert gets on the show while he's in the studio. He's, of course, he's having this back and forth with the FBI and the FBI. Are, they're not they don't handcuff him. They don't treat him like he's violent or anything like that. They're just having a, a sit down, sensible conversation with him. While all that's going on, we have what's developing at the townhouse while Jerry is taped up his mummified encased yeah. in tape <laughs> just again just having that look on his face like oh my god just please i just want this to be over with and then sandra or masha's she's she's starting to unfold her designs on him her where she's trying to seduce him <laughs> and just this yeah. insane rant that she's having at him this monologue she's having at him where she throws the wine glass and <laughs> oh my gosh. And and that's like the first, in, not the first instance, but an instance in which the hostile takeover dinner date thing <laughs> between <laughs> Masha and Jerry is also so like beautifully and expertly shot. Like it opens with that overhead shot of the table with the gun on one of the plates and then it cuts yes. to like a wide shot of the room and it's lit. The entire room is lit by dozens of candles. It's yeah, it's a reminder that you're still watching a Scorsese movie and that like a master craftsman is at work and is right. behind the camera because you forget that you're even watching like a Scorsese movie. It's so offbeat and weird. Um, you, you're reminded, oh, actually, the person directing this, it's fucking understands filmmaking to its umpteenth degree. Right. To every every last detail. He's it's got it right. Beautiful, beautifully shot. I love that I love that entire sequence. Yeah. So then we got, you know, Rupert's on the show 
he finally gets his he gets his time mm-hmm. and he delivers his monologue which we have Tony Curtis having to introduce him as being the guest host and <laughs> we get a we get a brief cameo from Martin Scorsese there they're having like an interaction and yeah he's like the TV director he's a but TV that's also director. another joker um an homage that's made in the Joker, which he's introduced as the king of comedy per his own request. And the Joker requests that he's introduced as Joker. So that's another like nod as well. Right. Correct. But yeah, of course. So now he has his monologue, he gets what he wants. And of course, as we all expect, he just has the most flat, unwitty, jokes but he's getting because of the situation he's in he has to get the canned responses or at least here's one of those things where it's indistinguishable mm-hmm. are we are we in his brain about this or is this actually happening mm-hmm. yeah because he's getting he's getting laughs whether or not laughs. it's one of three things real laughs laugh track or uh yeah all in his head who knows yeah all in his head so he, he ends up getting his he ends up getting what he wants. He's carted off. He makes his point to Rita. Shows that he's on the television show, and then it leads to the end where again we're either led to believe this is all fantastical or else this is actually what happened. And this was mm-hmm. you know this is what Rupert really either way he wanted it he he says if i can't get a career a legitimate career i want everybody to know my name from here on out and so that's what leads to this again this what you were talking about this very american notion or idea of you can be a notorious individual and still get fame and still get mythologized so he got what he wanted now, again, we don't know whether it's in his head or if this is reality, but he gets book deals and movie deals. And, you know, he so his plan works. He circumvented all of the the, the legitimate ways to get to stardom. And then it ends with him uh, having his own show. So he reaches a like Mark David Chapman level of of popularity <laughs> like yeah nobody knows mark david chapman outside of his relation to murdering john lennon and right. no one will remember rupert outside of this unhinged plan to to kidnap a beloved uh talk show figure in america <laughs> so right so there we go anything else you would like to add before we go into the other portions of this the the final good i know we have a really bloated good here but i would be remiss if i didn't mention because it's another one of my favorite scenes masha singing uh come rain or come shine to jerry (laughs) is like the film's creepiest crescendo like (laughs) sandra bernhard who she has such an organically beautiful voice too yeah um and, and that's contrasted with, like, the double entendre of, of the lyrics. It's just super spine-chilling. I felt, like, unsafe <laughs> during that right. scene. And I I loved that scene so much. It's so good. Yeah. 
I agree. Anything else? No, no, no. What do you got that's bad? I, I struggled mightily. Um, bad marketing. It's billed as a dark comedy, but it plays out so much more sinister than intended. So I'd be interested. I, I'd be interested to see like a trailer for this, given given the horror thriller treatment. Like maybe in my free time, I'll I'll just overlay the theme from from Cape Fear over the King of Comedy <laughs> trailer, just for some S's and G's. And just see what that looks like. Because I like, I went back and watched original trailers for this movie. And it's not like, it's not like, uh, it wasn't billed as like a, a yuckster knee slapper or anything. But it is billed as like an offbeat dark comedy. And, you know, Jerry Lewis is in it. You'll have a great time. It's Scorsese. Um, I don't think the studio knew what to do with this movie. Yeah. So I just said bad marketing because I I think that went a long way with this not doing very well. Yeah, I'll agree. Uh, to go back to our discussion on, on Combat Shock, that was another, clearly on a much lower, lower mm-hmm. underground level. But that was another instance of that, too, where it was marketed by Troma as being this action yeah, thriller, you know, blow shit up movie and to mm-hmm. basically compete with Terminator and Rambo and nothing could be even the case with that movie, you know, it was That's a, a good example. This yeah. yeah, whoever is in charge of of selling and putting these movies out there can do a real disservice to the movie by n- not selling it properly. Mhm. Or at least cucking people into going to see a movie that they would never ever want to see in their entire life i could see people walking out of this pissed off oh yes weirded out and that is not (laughs) usually a good thing uh it's yeah and unless you're like john waters (laughs) well and i experienced that firsthand when we talked about this when i went to go see mandy and everybody oh, yeah. went to, everybody went in droves to see Mandy because had Nicolas Cage top billing on it mm-hmm. and people were walking out. I wasn't at one of the uh, the instances where I heard about this. I, I, I went to two showings of it. People definitely walked out. But I remember reading about one particular show and where someone said, yeah, we were there. And it gets to the point where um, – the uh, cult leader disrobes and some people walked uh, out and said, y'all are fucking weird. And <laughs> <laughs> dipped out. Of the theater. Thank you. you. Can, yeah. See ya. All right. Um, okay. Any other bads? The only other thing I had was, I know that Masha doesn't have a modicum of self-awareness, but in terms of like bad decisions, I noticed she has vanity plates that just say, Masha. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which seems like a bad choice for like an impulsive psychopath who's a career stalker to, you know, if you want to hide in the weeds, it seems like a bad choice. But, but yeah, yeah, other than that, no, I don't, I don't have any bad to lay out on the actual movie itself because it was a right. delight. <laughs> yeah. Um, questionable. Speaking of Masha, we peppered this kind of throughout the discussion before, but <clears throat> I want to know what their relationship is. Top I almost, of, yeah, go ahead. I almost, I feel like they might actually be brother and sister. <laughs> Maybe. Well, yeah. 
that 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 would explain them both having very similar diagnoses. <laughs> right. Because there's clearly no romantic relationship here. So, I think they're they're so obsessed with the the romanticism of making it big they almost like are asexual. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Rupert does come off as a fairly asexual individual. But not just uh, that like not just their relationship but the top of my questionable is what happens to Masha? We don't hear any update as to if she served jail time or I guess the the ending is supposed to be from the delusional perspective of Rupert. So Masha doesn't uh, doesn't isn't in the equation. But yeah, yeah, what what happens to her is my question. (laughs) I don't know. I did like to go back a little bit. I did like when Jerry finally escapes and she just runs out in her underwear. And yeah, in her lingerie. Yeah. And it just shows how gangly and just praying mantis like Sandra Bernhardt is. Yeah. Yeah. That's a terrifying like, scene too. She's like a slender man kind of. <laughs> she is very character. slender. Slender woman. Slender slender lady. That's really also, all I have. Well, so is the ending one final delusion of Rupert's from behind bars or are we to believe that he did make it big? That's one of those speculations that never yeah, gets resolved. that's obviously the biggest question. <clears throat> so some things that I've read is it is speculated that that is him behind bars because throughout the entire movie, he he wears these very garish, brightly colored outfits. Mm-hmm. But in that final scene, it's, it's, mono, it's monochrome. Mm-hmm. He's just wearing like a red and white suit. So there's a speculation that that's supposed to be symbolic of him wearing his, his prison outfit. His, oh, I, I like know. that. I, I, I like to think that that ending is not like he does not make it big. Um, but then again, it's, it's ambiguous and it's great. Great. Talk yeah. about great ending. This could have gone sideways with a bad ending. Fantastic ending. That just, just wraps everything up nicely. It's ambiguous without being infuriating. Like, you know, (laughs) clawing my brain out, trying to figure out what they meant with it. It's ambiguous in the best way, because I like to envision both endings as a possibility. And that's fun. It's not the uh, fish scale at the end of Mermaid in a Manhole for you? Oh, my God. Yeah. Clawing my (laughs) eyes out. Yeah. (laughs) It just sent you through the fucking roof on that one. (laughs) Um, I don't have any other questions. No, no, I, those were my big questions. Okay. Let's move on to our awards and categories section then. Shall we? Let's, oh, good, good, fine. <laughs> good. Right. <laughs> good, 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 I'm good. fine. I'm fine. But, you know, my only real interest right from the beginning was show business. Even as a young man, I began at the very top, collecting autographs. <laughs> now... A lot of you are probably wondering why Jerry isn't with us tonight. Well, I'll tell you, the fact is he's tied up. And I'm the one who tied him. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know you think I'm joking, but believe me, that's the only way I could break into show business. By hijacking Jerry Langford. Right now, Jerry is strapped to a chair somewhere in the middle of this city. <laughs> Oh, 
Go ahead and laugh. Thank you. I appreciate it. But the fact is, I'm here. Now, tomorrow you'll know that I wasn't kidding and you'll think I was crazy. But look, I figure it this way. Better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. The David Mendelhall Award goes to the worst performance. Did you have a worst performance here? I... I was able to think outside the box and say okay. 20th Century Fox for seemingly not knowing what to do with this film. I, they're the they're the loose. They're, yeah, they're, they're the, the they're the weak link. They're the yeah, they're the weak, the weak link, link here. in the supply chain of this movie for sure. So thank you for bringing that up because I didn't have anything. So you saved it. The Frank Booth Award goes to the character who best belongs in a David Lynch movie. I said Rupert. Or it's Masha? like the most oh. obvious. Yeah, I, I said Rupert as well. But yeah, yeah, that's fairly obvious. E.G. Daily Secret Admirer Award goes to the biggest on-screen crush. I did want to put Sandra Bernhardt because she's just so dis- distinct. I think I she did. did. I, I put her as well. I, okay. I, you know, despite any sort of mental health diagnoses here. <laughs> um, it, this, like I said at the top, is a Sandra Bernhardt reclamation tour for me. I I. Went from not liking her or just not liking the only thing I know her from, which is Roseanne, to thumbs up for Sandra Bernhardt. So this this won me over on her. So that that's all you can fucking ask out of a performance. Well, that's good because I actually ultimately put Rita because we only have or two. Rita. We only <laughs> have two lead female I guess you could do not the not the main secretary but like the one uh, that serves as more of like the publicist like oh, I guess Lang- she's yeah, like Langford's some, assistant somewhat attractive yeah yeah um so a little bit of trivia in here because it's not necessarily directly associated with the movie but Rita I don't know if you knew this the actress whose name I don't have on the top of my head that was De Niro's wife at the time I saw that and well I'll save this for our next category, but um, one of my favorite quotes is uh, with with uh, De Niro, De Niro um, Scorsese's daughter, who's also it seems like his whole family was in this. His his mother was in this also. Yeah. His mother is Rupert's the voice of Rupert's mom off yeah. camera. But yeah. anyways, you were saying. Well, the welcome to primetime bitch award goes to the best one liner when. Uh, uh, the fangirl come, walks up to Rupert in one of his delusions for an autograph at dinner. And he's like, what's your name, sweetheart? And Dolores, that's my father's name. <laughs> that one got me. I love that one. That was my favorite one-liner. I wanted to say about the actress that plays Rita, though, I don't know if you recognize her, but she is also the porn theater concessionaire lady in Taxi Driver. Oh. The one that that spurs Travis Bickle's advances. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's that's that actress. I didn't recognize just, her. Yeah, where he's trying to come on to her and she's like, "What are you I'm working here and this is a porn theater. Get the fuck out of here, you creep." Her name <laughs> is Diane Abbott, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so you had your welcome to primetime bitch award uh one-liner. Man, I there's there's another one where I had a lot, but there's obviously the prime one, the 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 tagline, which is better to be a king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime, which is really good. But really I'd, have good. Say, I'd have to say I'll give it to the lady at the phone booth that said uh, you should go get cancer to Jerry Langford. Yeah, that's a pretty 
That's a good one. <laughs> My only other runner-up would be the, how you doing? Good, good. I'm fine. <laughs> that, that whole interaction was good, too. Yeah. Okay. So, we're doing pretty good on time, thankfully, because we didn't have a whole lot other than good. So, we're going to blaze through this wiki wormhole because it was pretty bloated. I had to truncate it pretty significantly just to make sure that we weren't going I've over I've had to time. do that recently as well. Um. <clears throat> Martin Scorsese said that he thought Robert De Niro's best performance under his direction was in this film. And I don't necessarily disagree. I mean, and that's saying a lot considering they had, they worked quite a bit together. Yeah, because this is so uncharacteristic of him. So he was having to do a lot that he probably never had to do before or after. Yeah. Speaking of the hope you get cancer line, when Jerry Langford is walking down the street, uh, that actually happened to Jerry Lewis in real <laughs> I, life. I could, I could see that. So they added that to the script. That's funny. <laughs> yes. Martin Scorsese said that later that making this film was an unsettling experience, go figure, in part because of the embarrassing, bitter material of the script. Scorsese said that he and De Niro may not have worked together again for seven years because of making this film. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, you already mentioned this, but yes, the Clash make a brief cameo as the the thug scumfucks. So. And that's interesting to go back to that last fact that, you know, of him working with him again, um, looking at the filmography, that would line up with Cape Fear. So. Yes. It's like they did King of Comedy and then they had needed a little break from each other and then they came back together to do Cape the Cape Fear remake. That's interesting. Which is which was another, I'm sure, emotionally grueling, debasing yeah, experience. Yeah, I like that they took a break from <laughs> they took a break from each other and then it's like a couple that is really toxic together and then they get <laughs> back together and are like doing their most toxic bullshit yet. Yeah, right. I love it. Yeah, he he calls up De Niro. He's like, hey, uh, hey, Bob. Hey, Bob, I know we haven't worked together in a long time. And I, you know, I put you through the ringer with that king of comedy. But here, now hear me out. Do you want to do a rebooted version of Cape Fear where you're a pedophile psychopath that comes on to a, what, 13-year-old? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I think De Niro jumped at the at the opportunity to recreate uh, a Robert Mitchum role. That probably was a, a lifetime achievement for him to to and an honor to to recreate a Robert Mitchum performance. So, but yeah, I, yeah. I think I think in any other scenario that that's a hard ask, right? Um, but to finish with that last thing that I said about the Clash. The Clash uh, is one of Martin Scorsese's favorite bands. Who would so, have known? Marty's a punk. He's a punk. Punk rocker. I could tell by those bushy eyebrows. <laughs> those unchecked eyebrows that he, he <laughs> those, loves the Clash. Yeah, those Sicilian brows. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Robert De Niro used anti-Semitic remarks to anger Jerry Lewis while filming the scene where they crash his country home. Lewis, who had never worked with method actors, was shocked and appalled, but delivered an extremely credible performance. That's really that. cool. I love That's that, a, too. 
Okay, let's see. Oh, this is great. See, this is why I love the fact that Jerry Lewis was in this because he had such critical input to the creation of the movie mm. that just elevated it. But this one one thing in particular really tickled me was uh he he insisted that he played by a character with his own first name because originally he was supposed to be called Bobby Langford in the script. Um, but he suggested this because he felt that they would be able to film actual re- real reactions from passer passers-by who would recognize him oh that's a good that's a good call by him yeah so those things that are happening are all real with the exception of the cabbie and the the i hope you get cancer one later actual actors those were actual actors but all the other instances were people on the street thinking oh that's jerry lewis hey jerry you know yeah that's that's very smart um Sandra Bernhardt was allowed to improvise most of her lines as she had no formal acting training. And Martin Scorsese wanted her to be as natural as possible. And she improvised the whole monologue scene between her and Jerry as well. That is incredible. What an incredible to go from very little to no experience to being with with Marty himself and De Niro. That that is a hard, hard ask. Juliette Lewis is the only other person that comes to mind and yeah she was a fucking child yeah the fact that again scorsese being the the master of his craft is able to take these these unformed clays of of actors and actresses and and mold them in such a formidable way is really says so much if you if you didn't already have enough accolades to lay on to him mm-hmm. we already talked about that the Rupert's mom is Morton's mom. Let's see what else. Oh, that scene at the country house took five days to film, so it must have been it was real punishing. Whoa, that's wild because it's not that long. It's not that long, so yeah, they were really grinding on that one to get it right. Um, since we talked about Jason Bateman a few episodes ago because he was one of our stump the chumps i like this and since i've been watching ozark jason bateman said that rupert pumpkin pumpkin is one of his favorite all-time acting performances he regarded de niro's acting style as the perfect example on how to perform at a high level consistent consist consistently excuse me throughout a whole movie but without ever losing the audience sympathy or dropping the ball by becoming self-aware or congratulatory Mm. and i agree Good job. That's Jason well Bateman, said. Jason Bateman's one of those, especially in the back end of his career here, you know, from uh, Arrested Development on, who's done a really good job of perfecting a certain st- understated style with his roles. Where yeah. he he almost plays, he plays the sort of role that Jerry Lewis in this movie is kind of representing, being that just you can tell he's just always in his brain at his wits end with all of the shenanigans going around (laughs) him, trying to hold everything together, being the smartest man in the room and knowing it, but just not trying to lose his cool the whole time. And I think Jason Bateman does a really good job of playing that particular individual. Yeah, I would agree. Um, Jerry Langford's lawyer in this was played by Martin Scorsese's real life lawyer. Also, I didn't know if you noticed this, but the outfit he's wearing is the same outfit that Gregory Peck is wearing in Cape Fear. Whoa. 
<laughs> what the hell? I, I made that conclusion myself. I didn't even look that up, but I noticed that. The good so. eye. All right. And then finally, we got a couple more. Martin Scorsese is quoted as saying about the screenplay, I thought the movie was just a one-line gag. You won't let me go on the show, so I'll kidnap you, and you'll put me on the show. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is very... And I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen this. Have you ever seen the movie um, Suicide Kings? Yes. I love this, that movie. Uh, this had Suicide Kings vibes to it um, as well, but not, <laughs> right. you know, in a different way. But that's what I mean. Again, the DNA of this, I feel, has oh, been. Yeah, yeah. No, there's replic- so many, so many films that, that owe this movie a credit. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, this is to end it on a, on a real humdinger. Martin Scorsese has stated that he probably should not have made this film. <laughs> Fuck. What? what the hell? That's yeah. funny and weird. Marty, don't come on. We need we need it, Marty. We need it in the in the barrel of your filmography. Yeah, he probably <laughs> I don't know. I wonder what the timestamp is on that quote. If that was something that happened yeah. immediately after, or if this is this retrospectively after 2017, <laughs> 2017, Marty doing some revisionist yeah. history on his. And sometimes we start with or end with this, but I just thought it was interesting for in terms of body count. Uh, we, we had a big donut again this week. So a midnight flicks first back to back weeks of no dying whatsoever. Right. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna mention that. Sorry, have I, I to do forgot that, that. That newer Rambo movie just to fucking <laughs> to, to pick up the slack. <laughs> to pick up the slack for next week. Yeah, for sure. So no, no dead, no dead people in this at all. Not even approaching death in any of these. No, no. Well, although they they do, I I do. I was worried for a second there that there was going to be something really bad that happens. But yeah, never get never ventures there. Well. I didn't put this in the wiki wormhole, but this was another tidbit that I did read that Jerry Lewis actually, he, he wanted Jerry Langford to die in the movie. He suggested mm. it and they, they, they didn't want it to have, they didn't want it to go that way. I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad that it ended the way it did. I'm glad that he, he didn't get killed by them. Yeah. So no, I think, I think everything, worked out exactly how it should have. Okay. Well, let's uh, come up with an iconography and then rate this movie. What do you got? Ah, interesting. This is not a movie that's replete with memorable iconography. Mm-hmm. The cue cards, was, we could do cue cards. There's a cue cards. I was going to say maybe, maybe Rupert's, uh, briefcase. <laughs> I was going to mention that earlier. You know somebody's fucking crazy if they have a briefcase, but it only has food in it, which goes back to Kramer. And he's like, you have a briefcase? And he's like, what do you keep in there? And he says, crackers. <laughs> also goes back to falling down. Also goes back to, yeah, yeah. If, if, you, if somebody's carrying around a briefcase, but there's only sandwiches or snacks in it, then that person had a mental break from reality. <laughs> at some point let's just let's just do the cue cards because that's a one of our favorite scenes collectively okay. so out of five cue cards uh, what did you give this 
I restrained myself from giving it a, a perfect five, um, but I will give it a a four and a half. Um, okay. I I can't think of a movie that I've watched recently that I revisited as many times in a short period of time out of just pure joy than I did with this and and how uncomfortable it made me and how unhinged it is uh it was a it was an experience i loved it and i'm grateful for you having brought it up glad that we've had two movies that i brought to the table that have brought you some modicum of joy back to back mm-hmm. uh i'm gonna give it a five just because as i said this has climbed up consistently to being one of, if not maybe my favorite Martin Scorsese movie at this point. So, All right. perfect score for me. I haven't given any, I've been restrained because I don't want to give away things and, and I don't want things to lose their luster because of frivolous ratings. So, but I'm going to give this one a five out of five. Five cue cards, five upside down, mismatched, out of order cue cards. <laughs> from me i ain't even mad about it yeah (laughs) it deserves it okay pat so i'm gonna just state on air here because by the time this episode drops i will be in indiana for those of you that have listened to us consistently for a while now you will hearken back to last year's flickstober where we did the nightmare on elm street series and for one of those, I was in Pat's home. We had overcome what we thought were insurmountable technical issues <laughs> that we thought would, wouldn't happen when we're in the same building. We came together in person just to seemingly have more issues uh, than ever for some <laughs> fucking reason. But yeah, we will uh, do another in-person record this season as well. Yes. Yeah, so by the time this one drops, I will be in Indiana and then... The week after, we'll be recording, that weekend after, we'll be recording our next in-person episode. But, so that will be, I think, let's, no, we've got one more here where I'm I'm still in Seattle. But tell me, Pat, what is the next movie we're watching? This will be, um, correct me if I'm wrong, our oldest movie that we've ever done, um, 1932. Oh, going in the in the way back that's, machine. That's way way back. Yes, my friend. Uh, and it poses the 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 very uh, important question of: Can a full grown woman truly love a midget? We are watching Todd Browning's Freaks from 1932, which is rife with controversy, uh, but probably one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Yes, bless your heart. Because this is going to be one, well, we had both seen Detroit Rock City, so mm-hmm. but this is going to be another one that we've both seen. And I will state right up front, also love this movie. So this will be a, a good discussion to have for a variety of reasons. So till then, you freaks. Yeah, till then, you freaks. This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for our intro music. 
Our outro music today is provided by Martin Scorsese's favorite band, The Clash themselves. Um, I hear they're doing some gigs again, right? Gonna be playing in your town. Oh, fuck. I guess I gotta dust off the Doc Martens. Get to stomping. Get to stomping. <laughs> not in like a bad way. Not like a like stomping fascist oh, you, sort I of way. I was gonna say, like, yeah, you're gonna get to stomping like a <laughs> like your skinhead stomp. Like a gig uh, stomping. If you have any questions, please email us at midnightflixpod at gmail.com. We have an Instagram. And also, I wanted to mention this before. We have a TikTok that by the time you guys hear this will be well in the in the in the vaults but at the time of recording this TikTok has skyrocketed for some reasons that we cannot surmise so thank you to our Ugandan listeners and (laughs) all of our new TikTok listeners if anyone is has been directed to this podcast via TikTok. Thanks for following, and I hope this wasn't the worst decision of your life. Probably yeah, is. We're, we're being carried on the shoulders of the fine nation of Uganda and TikTok at this point. So we guessed it. <laughs> Such anyway. strong, broad shoulders. <laughs> so yeah, check out those social media platforms, and yeah, we'll see you next time. You freaks.